So last week we kind of jumped, um, not jumped, we just kind of pushed through, I guess I should say, and we, we kind of are at a, at a spot where the, the story hinges, and so I'm going to do a little, a little backtrack, and then we're going to kind of push forward a little bit, but um, as I talked about, you know, the, the style that Matthew was writing in, um, he had all of those ands in a row, and so we, we work through those, and that's not to say that the stories aren't connected when they don't start with an and, but, but there is a, a little different focus. And so uh, Matthew's kind of slowing down um, here to, to set up a stage or set up a, a, a scene um, for Christ's uh, future, uh, future actions. So we're going to begin again in uh, Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. And as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And Matthew rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in his house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what it means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came to call not the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. But no one, or excuse me, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst. And the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. As I just mentioned, Matthew is setting up a scene for the future. Jesus calls Matthew. Matthew follows him and invites him into his house. And Jesus eats with all these people who are rejected by the religious Jews in the community. And so... That sets the stage for Jesus' following actions. People are coming to him, asking him questions. Why are you doing this? This is not normal. Religious teachers and prophets do not do what Jesus is doing. So the first thing that I want to point out is, I I ran over this last week. I I didn't run over. I I mentioned it a little bit. But in verse 9, Jesus passed from there and he saw a man, Matthew, sitting at his tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. Jesus does call us to follow him. Jesus calls us to follow him, and the question is, are we going to do it? Have you experienced the call of Christ to follow him? Are you listening? Are you in a position to listen and hear him? I don't know if you've paid attention to the... uh, the, the series chosen, and I, I, we had a scene of it a few, a few weeks ago, or maybe a month ago now. It sets up Matthew 
to be in a position to listen to Christ. He's, he's paying attention to this man walking around, and he, he's, he's looking at him from a distance. And one day, Jesus comes to him. Are you positioned in your life to hear from Christ? Do you believe he speaks to you? Or is this just all perfunctionary? Is this just all a part of what I do, what I'm expected to do? Because Jesus really does call people. And it's up to us to respond, but we have to be in a position to listen. So Jesus is sitting at this table, and first he has the Pharisees come to him. The Pharisees are the super-duper holy people of the day. That everyone looks to and says, man, if I could just be like them, then I would have God's blessing on my life. And they have completely missed that God is a God who desires mercy and not just religious activity. And then, after they come, the disciples of John came to them. Remember John? Way back in chapter 4? He was the guy who proclaimed that the Messiah was coming. And he would say, Behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John is then taken into prison, and his disciples are left not knowing what is going on. And so they continue with John's teaching, and they come to Jesus, and they said, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So, we live in a culture that is saturated with this pseudo-Christian gravy, I like to call it. It's all the good things that Christ has to offer and none of the bad. No, God doesn't want bad things to happen to you. And when they do happen, it's not God's fault. It's just the way the things work. When we live in a Christian culture of... of um, of really just pseudo-Christian gravy. I'm just going to stick with that term because I like it. We think we know what it means to be a Christian. We think we know what it looks like to live a Christian life. But in this passage, you see a clash of cultures. You see people who followed the man who proclaimed the coming of Christ, that Christ, that Jesus was in fact the Messiah, and they come to him And they say, why do your disciples not fast? All the other religious people do this, and you don't do this. That will always be the case with Jesus' followers. There will be some who come and say, aren't you supposed to do this? Or aren't you not supposed to do blank? Followers of Christ will puzzle people by their actions. Are we going to be a church who focuses more on following the expectations of what it means to be a Christian? Or are we going to be a church, a people called by Christ, who focus more on following Christ and obeying what he's called us to do, to heck with what people think we're supposed to be doing? The question really is, why was Jesus feasting with sinners rather than fasting with the religious. I'll ask that again. Why was Jesus feasting with these sinners 
rather than fasting with the religious people. I can't help but pause here and make a note on religion. In our culture, religion is pitted against relationship. And there was a good reason for that back in the 70s and 80s when I think Billy Graham began doing that. Because if you just have a religion and not a relationship, then you've missed the boat of Christianity. But the Bible talks about religion. In fact, the Bible uses the word religion in a good way. It's only in our modern era that we've taken religion and we've made it kind of a four-letter word. It's a bad thing. We don't want to be religious. We want to be spiritual. But religion is just a set of beliefs that one's devoted to. Everybody is religious in one way or another. Everyone has beliefs that they are devoted to, whether they acknowledge that or not. Whether they've given any thought to it or not, they, they can be carried away by the waves of the culture and not giving thought to their religious beliefs. Or they can think about their religious beliefs and then be devoted to them. I think we need more devotion in our religion today. The old timers would talk about religion in such a way as it was a, an honorable thing. And we've taken religion and we've made it a four-letter word. And in so doing, we think that our religious life doesn't include any kind of devotion in it. doesn't include any kind of discipline in it. Because we don't want to be bogged down by rules. We want to be free. True freedom comes through true religion. Not a false religion that we've kind of made it out to be. So Jesus is here. Why is Jesus feasting with these sinners and tax collectors? These are people who have abandoned God's chosen people. They've sided with the Romans and they're using the Romans to get rich. Why is Jesus feasting? I mean, he's, he's celebrating with them. Why is Jesus celebrating with these sinners rather than being all holy and feast or and fasting with the religious people? To answer this question, Jesus gives three illustrations. The first illustration is one of marriage. What does he say? He says, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? They took a week to celebrate weddings, right? We basically do it in a day, all right? And <clears throat> there would be a, a wedding set, and it wouldn't be 3 o'clock on a Saturday. It would be sometime in the month of October. We're going to have a wedding. People just had to be ready for whenever the bridegroom came and said, all right, everything's prepared. Come. Celebrate with us. And so the people would be ready, and they may be waiting for a couple of weeks and during that time, what would they be doing? They'd be anxiously awaiting the bridegroom. Jesus says, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? What is he saying here? He's saying he is the bridegroom. Now that just may wash over all of us. Okay, yeah, I mean, it sounds good. It's a good illustration, but what is Jesus actually saying? Do you remember back in the the story with the disciples and the boat. What kind of man do the winds and the seas obey? Who is this? 
And then all the stories after that were the demons who knew who he was. He was the one who can forgive sin. He's the one who came for sinners, not the religious people. And here, he identifies himself as the bridegroom. The bridegroom was an Old Testament illustration on God. Listen to this. I have, I have, I have just uh, three passages. There's, there's others. In Isaiah 62, verse 5, and it says, And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Identifying God is the bridegroom of Israel. Jeremiah 3, verse 20. Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so have you been treacherous to me, O house of Israel. God is the husband, the bridegroom of Israel, and they've left him. They've cheated on him with other gods. And then in Hosea 2.19, which I actually quoted last week to close our our, uh, service. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Jesus is saying, Through this analogy of the bridegroom, he is claiming to be God. If you ever hear anyone tell you that Jesus never claims to be God, he's claiming to be God in each one of these paragraphs in Matthew chapter 9. It's just we're too dull-witted and uh, biblically illiterate to notice. Jesus is saying, I am the bridegroom and I have arrived. Why should these people fast when I'm here? He knew who he was. So to fast in Jesus' day was not to, in, in the Christian world of fasting, it's almost like, man, in fact, I've heard someone say this, when you fast, it's like holding up a megaphone to God. If you really want to get God's attention, fast. He likes that. In Jesus' day, fasting was a sign of mourning. Fasting was a sign of, of downtroddenness. Fasting was a sign that you needed needed God to move on your behalf in such a way as to lift you up, maybe to bring you comfort. And so for Jesus, he's saying, to fast right now is completely inappropriate. Who goes to a wedding and is sulky and sad and downcast? That's completely inappropriate. Leave if you're going to be like that. Jesus is saying, now is the time to feast. Why could Jesus feast with sinners? Because he is the one who came to forgive sinners. He is their bridegroom. He rejoices over sinners, not because they've sinned, but because he is a God, gracious and merciful, who comes and redeems them from their sin. So that's the first illustration. The the next two illustrations kind of go together. They're the cloth and the wineskin. Now, I'm not a person who gets his jeans patched, but I do know people who do that. Okay? The purpose of patching a piece of clothing is so you don't have to go buy another one, right? So you are trying to fix the, the clothing, the article, so you don't have to pay more money. So you want to make sure you do it right. In Jesus' day, if you took a fresh piece of leather or a fresh fresh piece of cloth and you would 
you sewed it together with the old, then over time, the stitching is going to rip because that piece of cloth is going to shrink. So these people would be like, well, duh, Jesus. Everybody knows that. As well as for the following illustration, they would have been, duh, Jesus. Everybody knows that. If you're going to put new grape juice into a vat of leather, you want to make sure that they're both new. Why? Because the, the grape juice will ferment. The gases will expand. And if you use an old wineskin, they become brittle and they can't expand. And so it bursts and you not only lose the wine, you also lose the wineskin. So what is Jesus saying here? Remember, this is within the idea that Jesus came for sinners. This is an illustration about Jesus making a special trip. You, you remember the, uh, the scene with the demons, the demon-possessed men. And they say, why are you here? Jesus, you're showing up early to the party. It's not time to torment us, so leave us alone. What is Jesus' special trip to earth about? Jesus is saying, I'm doing something new. And it's not going to fit in the old ways. Jesus' special trip to earth before the end of the age was to establish something new. So the question that that I have for us, I was like, as I'm reading this, why in the world does a question about fasting lead to Jesus to talk about him being the bridegroom and talking about the old versus the new. I mean, this is a pretty simple question, Jesus. Why are we having to complicate it? What in the world is going on for Jesus to launch into illustrations about the old versus the new? The answer is because Jesus has come, he changes everything. What Jesus came to establish on earth won't fit in the old ways of doing things. With him dawns a new era. And the old has to pass away. Because if it doesn't, it will destroy both. Do do you get what he's saying? The illustration is that if I come and I put my new way on this old garment, it will tear and it will be worse than it was before. If I come and put my new covenant into the container that can have the old covenant in it, both covenants will be destroyed and neither one will work. Jesus is coming to make something completely new. And that is what we see throughout the scriptures. Jesus' coming may have surprised the demons. It may have surprised the spiritual world. And it may have surprised the majority of the world of men. But it did not surprise those who knew the scriptures. In Hebrews chapter 8 verse 13... The writer of Hebrews is talking about the new covenant. And he says, in speaking of a new covenant, this is he had just quoted the, the new covenant from the Old Testament and that God one day he'll come, he'll sprinkle his people, he'll make them clean, he'll put a new heart within them, a heart of flesh so that they can respond to God rather than a heart of stone where that is not responsive to God. And he says, because the prophets talked about something new, a new covenant, 
He makes the first obsolete. The second you know something new is coming, how does that make you feel about the old? Man, I can't wait for the new thing. When there's a new iPhone coming out, what happens to your old iPhone? It's kind of boring. It's kind of old news. There's a new covenant coming. And the second the prophets talked about the new covenant, it made the old one start to drift away. It is old news. It is the old way of doing things. He says, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Paul talks about this all over his letters. I'm just going to quote one passage. In Galatians 3, verse 23, he writes this. Now before faith, let me put this in context for you. Paul is talking about relating to God through the law of Moses and now relating to God through Christ, faith in Christ. So when he says the word faith, he is salvation through Christ. Now before salvation through Christ, uh, through faith in Christ, before that came, before Christ came and established this new covenant, we, that is the Jewish people, were held captive under the law, imprisoned until this coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now faith in Christ has come. We are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you all are one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And then he gives one verse and explains this. In Colossians chapter 4.1, he said, I mean that an heir... As long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, even though everything belongs to him. He's the owner of it all. He just doesn't have possession of it. He is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. So what's the, what is going on here? God gave the law to Israel to preserve them for the time when Christ would come and begin a new covenant, where all people come to him through faith and in faith find forgiveness and redemption in Christ. So you, you may have read over this passage of the wineskin and the cloth, and you may have understood kind of the, the, the meaning, the implication of like, that makes sense with the old cloth and the new cloth and the old wine and the new wine. But what does that relate to? Jesus is saying, everything is new. The old is now obsolete because I am here. I am the bridegroom. I am Emmanuel. I am God with us. And I'm beginning something new. It doesn't mean that the old covenant was bad. It doesn't mean that we need to put it under our thumb and look down upon it. Because as Paul says, the old covenant, the law of Moses was God's way of preserving a people for thousands of years for the time of the Messiah. But Jesus says, now that I have come, we've got to make a new wineskin. Now that I've come, we've got to get new clothing. 
So in this section, Jesus answers the relationship between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. What is its purpose? God revealed himself to Israel through the Old Covenant. We should study it and we should know it. It does tell us things about God, but it does not tell us how we relate to him now. We relate to, we relate to God through the sacrifice of his son. Now, because Jesus has come, he says, call God your father. If we have received Jesus Christ, if we have believed in his name, Jesus, or we can refer to God as father. And Jesus is our bridegroom. He is our brother. He is our sacrifice. I want to close just through a simple meditation on sacrifice. This helps when you know the Old Testament. The people, God's people related to God through sacrificing a lamb. That their sin was put upon this helpless, innocent, without blemish animal. And the family had to buy it or had to raise it. And then it was slaughtered. It was a sacrifice. It meant something to the family. It cost the family something to do this. That's what a sacrifice is. It costs you something for a greater benefit. So you may be thinking, well, how is Christ my sacrifice? I mean, what is, it, what is it to me that he died? He wasn't mine to offer. He was not precious to me. I didn't care that Christ died for me before I believed in him. He was God's sacrifice. He was God's lamb, as John said. John, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, meaning we cannot have a sacrifice good enough for our sins to be forgiven. God had to provide the sacrifice. And it costs God dearly to sacrifice his son. He paid the price to forgive my sin so that I could freely be given forgiveness if I believe. All that is true, and yet there is more to the sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus is my sacrifice in that it pains me to think about Christ suffering on the cross for my sin. It pains me to think about him bearing the wrath of God for me. I deserved it. It was my sin that held him there. See, now Christ is precious to me. So he becomes my sacrifice in that when I think about him on the cross, I am crushed. I cannot bear hardly the fact that he died for my sin. Because he is now precious to me. He is now all my life, all my meaning, all my hope, all my joy is wrapped up in, in this precious life. And he gave it up for me. So whereas Christ is now 
was God's sacrifice for my sin. For those who believe, he now becomes their sacrifice as well. Once you believe in him, once you savor him, once he is your treasure. So the question that remains for us, I'm thinking about Christ coming before the appointed time according to the spiritual world. Christ coming for sinners. Christ offering them mercy. And Christ beginning a new covenant to where we can relate to him as our sacrifice. The question remains, is he your sacrifice? In your mind and in your heart, is Jesus Christ just the Lamb of God that God sent to be the, to be the Savior of the world to forgive sins? Or has he become your own sacrifice? Is he precious to you? Can you bear the thought of him bearing your sins on a cross and suffering? Because it is in that moment that he becomes yours. He becomes precious to you. And you begin to understand what it took for him to suffer on an instrument of execution that we use for decoration. Let's pray. Dear Holy God,